Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience and multi-actor systems, we want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast we wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Jose Canizares Gastelo is a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Technology Policy and Management at the TU Delft. Is a Master's in Philosophy of Science, Technology and Society from the University of Twente. His current research focuses on urban resilience and particularly in identifying, characterizing and discussing approaches to manage morally relevant concerns in resilience building initiatives. Resilience has become a very influential concept in urban adaptation to climate change, but there are problems with the concept especially in relation to alignment to sustainability and justice. In this lecture, José introduces ethics in resilience, conceptualizing urban resilience from a critical perspective. Okay, so this session uh, is called Designing 
climate resilient than just cities. Uh, we are going uh, Carissa, uh, Champlin, and I, Jose Carlos Cañizares, I'm going to, to give you a brief introduction to socio-technical resilience, uh, uh, theoretical introduction, and the second part of the session, we will play a, a game, an exercise, where we will illustrate, you know, uh, complexities involved in um, building resilience, in choosing resilience measures, especially with regards to uh, the justice issues that they can raise and how can we can address them best. Uh, so I will start by some comments on conceptualizing and contextualizing what urban resilience is about. Many of you will by now have heard about resilience. Um, in the last two decades, this term has become increasingly important in uh, many scientific fields. And it also has become an organizing principle for many huge initiatives related to the urban transformation to climate change, urban adaptation to climate change, or urban transformation in general, such as the new urban agenda by the, promoted by the United Nations Habitat, or uh, the 100 Resilient Cities pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation that you see there. Uh, so resilience, resilience is now moving lots of money and efforts on the ground. But the question, of course, is what, what is really resilience? And there are many views about that. It's a complicated field. But here we will draw on a view that comes from ecology, um, sees resilience as a property of complex systems related to their ability to withstand uh, shocks and stresses or to adapt to them. Uh, this is the view that has been more, has become more influential in the context of climate uh, adaptation or urban adaptation to climate change. And I'm going to introduce you a little bit to some peculiarities of this view with a brief video um, that explains some, some aspects of it very well. So I can just explain here, you can see a shock on the ball, which is a system, represents a system, um, but it goes back to its, its uh, normal state from an ecological perspective. Uh, you again have your system represented as a ball and it has an equilibrium, but when a shock impacts that system, it may reach a tipping point, go past that tipping point and reach a new state of equilibrium. This is a second definition of resilience. From a socio-ecological perspective, then we look at widening, let's say, the space of our uh, equilibrium. So now again, we have a shock on the system, the ball, and then here you see the tipping point has moved. So these are just a couple of uh, examples of how you can see uh, resilience uh, um, differently. And many different dif disciplines have their different definitions of uh, resilience for the systems that they research? Well, uh, resilient systems have two or alternatively three different aspects. The first two are alternative. And they are, constitute different views of what resilience is. One of, one of them is that the resilience, resilient systems can recover efficiently. The other says that they, even if they can recover efficiently, but they at least are able to maintain their critical functions. Um, the third view is complementary to the second one, or even to the first one, which is the idea that resilient systems are also adaptable. However, as you saw in the video, resilient systems are those that adapt, at least in part, by 
shifting tipping points in the video set. It's also very, uh, said in the literature that they, these systems can control the, the stability landscape. What this means is that when resilient systems are fa facing inevitable transitions, at least because they are resilient, they can postpone tipping points, that is control when change happens, um, turn abrupt changes into less abrupt ones, that is control the speed of change, and in some accounts, they can also manage uh, or direct the system to states that are more desirable than others. Uh, that is control the direction of change. Now, after these comments on these views of resilience, or these three aspects of resilience, it is perhaps more obvious where resilience has become so important as a strategy for urban climate change adaptation. Now, to get into what urban resilience is, we need to understand, of course, not only what resilience is, but also how we can understand cities in the context of climate change. And there are, of course, many different views of what a city is. Um, cities have been understood as, you know, the entanglement of human stories, as the background of human interaction, as centers for the uh, production and accumulation of, human, of capital. But the, an understanding that has become increasingly common in the context of resilience and resilience thinking is the one that you see there. That's a very significant, uh, popular uh, definition in the literature that understands cities in, as complex systems. That is, uh, as um, systems of systems or systems where many networks are connected and that operate at many different scales from the street to the global financial system. Um, and these authors also have proposed, proposed an integrated view of urban resilience, where both uh, the three aspects of resilience and this understanding of cities are combined into a coherent view, which is pretty much in line with the, um, the view of resilience and the measures, the game that we will play later. Okay, uh, as you can see there, there are three aspects of resilience which are highlighted in, in red. Those are the ones that we explained before. And the third one is the one that stands for the long-term aspect of resilience. That is the idea that resilient systems would be able not only to adapt to the immediate conditions, but also to, in some, in, in, in some, sort, in some way, provide for um, along the long-term conditions for future resilience of the system. Of course, that makes resilience more closely aligned with the idea of sustainability, but nonetheless, we will explain some parallels and tensions between these concepts later. Right, so um, picking up on this concept of um, cities as um, complex interdependent uh, systems, uh, if we pick one definition um, commonly used at the technical universities that we work at, um, here in the Netherlands, um, like the TU Delft, uh, we can look at the city as um, a, yeah, a complex uh, yeah, meta system that consists of a number of urban subsystems. Um, from the engineering perspective, we often talk about water systems, en uh, energy, the built environment, agriculture, cyber systems, and transport. And um, obviously these systems are, are not uh, isolated, they're highly interdependent on one another. Um, so when we talk about resilience, we often talk about the of what, uh, which would be the system that we're um, specifically interested in or the uh, system of systems. 
and we talk about the two what. So when we talk about the two what, we are um, talking mainly about uh, what we call shocks and stresses. Um, a very well-known stress um, that we're all very familiar with by now is, of course, climate change. Um, climate change and other chronic stresses um, can have intensifying um, impacts on um, shocks. So they're very interrelated, um, the two concepts. Uh, shocks, on the other hand, are um, um, disasters, other sorts of um, more short-term um, spontaneous things oftentimes um, that can have an impact on uh, your system. And both of these are increasing uh, in terms of severity and of, uh, in the case of shocks, uh, in terms of frequency. So here you can see in the illustration that uh, as we have a warming planet, uh, more long-term uh, frequent stresses are occurring, um, but also it's uh, really uh, making our summers hotter, for example, and we're having um, more instances of heat waves in cities. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of negative uh, implications for uh, people and uh, infrastructures in our cities. So um, can you um, go to the next slide? Yeah. Another uh, important interdependency we look at um, is the interdependency between our urban networks or our systems um, with one another. So um, as we move uh, in uh, many countries towards um, smart, well, they call them smart mobility concepts, um, we see more dependency on energy and, um, and uh, cyber networks. Um, the same thing in the Netherlands, um, cyber networks control our dam system, which protects us uh, from flooding. I think about 40% of the Netherlands is actually below sea level. So um, if our systems fail, uh, we have a massive disaster in uh, the second most um, high density country in the world after Indonesia. I think we still have that, uh, can claim that. Um, so here's a, I wanted to show you an example of two types of interdependence. Um, well, what this does is these interdependencies of our networks, while they in some ways can make us more resilient, they can also make us more vulnerable. So um, in the first example where you see these, um, these networks, this is all, uh, this is a simulation of um, telephone networks um, during a disaster. So in the orange network, you can see that after 24 hours, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, phones have died and people cannot get critical information that they need in order to cope with uh, the disaster. Um, in the SOS simulation, um, researchers at TU Delft are looking at uh, one in particular, how uh, we can actually use this um, inter interconnectivity um, to actually prolong um, battery lives of our phones in order to um, keep people better in contact over a longer period of time, therein increasing uh, our resilience uh, to a shock. But as you can see in the other picture below, um, because of our hyperconnectivity of our cities, um, if, for example, we have a, a cyber attack on our, um, on our um, telecommunications and internet systems, this could shut down a lot of other systems in our cities. Uh, you can typically classify shocks um, in three categories. We have natural shocks, which are quite well known, I think by now all around the world, flooding, um, um, global, the um, pandemics, uh, earthquakes and droughts, but we also have uh, human induced shocks. So uh, technological shocks, 
like cyber threats um, and um, breakdowns of our, um, um, our systems, which I mentioned previously, radiation and poisoning, oil spills, uh, all these things obviously have, um, can be shocks on our systems. And of course, there are the socioeconomic um, shocks that we experience either through um, failures in our financial systems or crises, um, massacres, social conflict, uh, wars, uh, all of these uh, belong to um, different types of sho shocks, although you could argue that um, some of them go become so prolonged that they start to look more like, um, like uh, um, stresses. So uh, what can we do about this? Well, uh, what we, uh, what we uh, do, in, uh, what society often does is uh, governments Re, um, informed either by, uh, oftentimes by researchers, ideally also by citizens, is we look at those type, types of governmental and engineering and societal measures that we can take in order to uh, cope with our shocks and stresses. So in the top graph, you can see that these stresses over time are slowly just wearing down um, our system. Um, but if we inter, um, implement countermeasures, um, they can have different effects. And that's where you see the line going up again, but in different trajectories. Uh, in the graph below that, you can see a shock happens once, you have this abrupt um, decline, but again, you implement the different um, types of measures that Jose mentioned previously, adap adapting, mitigating, recovering from a shock. And then you have a different um, path of uh, um, um, recovery. And then on the right, you can see it is uh, the first week of COP26. So you can see here um, in the case of uh, global warming, um, the same thing happening. We have um, um, different trajectories of uh, how um, climate is uh, changing, temperatures are rising, and um, there are all sorts of things that impact um, the projections. And one of them, again, is uh, the measures that we can take, we will take, we are taking, or we aren't taking in order to change uh, um, our future. This is your slide, Jose. Well, resilience, of course, means some things we explained. And the context of resilience uh, is the one that Karis explained. But what does, how, how can we flesh out this idea, how, the, how does it come to practical measures or strategies? Well, there are a few ideas that, that are commonly understood as proxies of resilience or factors or qualities of resilient systems. And among these ideas, three of them are very, you know, featured in most accounts, um, which are those of redundancy, flexibility, and diversity. And below, you can see cards of the game you will play later uh, that more or less exemplify these three qualities. For instance, in energy systems, we have a uh, measure, typical measure for building resilience is building redundancies, that is providing uh, energy through different uh, and possibly better independent means from, through different systems. Um, Floodable promenades, uh, which comes to stand for flexibility and then adding infrastructure with particular functions that comes to stand for diversity. That is by adding infrastructure with particular functions, we avoid again uh, bottlenecks when some of the infrastructures clash, 
for instance. Problem. What problems? Is that for all the, the good that these measures or other measures, uh, resilience-based measures may sound, um, for all the desirable things they can bring to our city or some subsistence of the city or most of uh, the inhabitants in the city, they can also have very negative impacts on some people. And there are many reasons why this might be the case. But in recent reviews of uh, uh, case studies uh, uh, about uh, work performed in the Asian Cities Climate Change Resilience Network, uh, uh, in the in the article that, I, that we sent you or we shared with you in the folder, in the common folder, uh, we see two very interesting ones that actually stand for a broad spectrum of issues. On the one hand, resilience measures can in themselves have justice trade-offs. For instance, some household can, households can build boundary walls that directly affect their neighborhoods, their neighbors. And that's especially the case when the neighbors don't have the ability because they are poorer to build their own boundary walls. And another thing is that we need to pay really a lot of attention to social, cultural, and political realities. That is, even though our resilience measures can be tuned in order to avoid undesirable damages of all sorts, in order not to damage disproportionately anyone, still, how they will be embedded in their cultural context, in their political context, that matters a lot. Sometimes political realities don't allow for implementing uh, measures as you would like. Um, here we have an example that the local leader in India, in Indore, had no interest in solving the water issue a problem with droughts. So, because he already solved that problem for the people he was interested in, the people who was going to vote him. That, or of course, resonates with examples you you saw also in Roberto's booklet uh, about the zoning in American cities in the 30s. You know, these are not direct friends of the leaders who were in charge of the zoning, but were of course the people who that, that they were interested in catering in, in catering to so or who or in catering to their interests. So uh, uh, of course Resilience measures can be, of course, uh, dependent and will be often dependent in the political realities where they are embedded, creating injustice eventually. In another article that we shared with you, uh, the, the authors provide an extensive amount of uh, different justice issues that are arising in uh, eight cities, uh, if I remember well, uh, that can relate to the provision of infrastructure, to how people are included in the planning process, uh, to land use regulations, or to how the role that the private, private sector has in, in resilience building. Uh, this is just to illustrate that issues can come in many forms, uh, issues with justice. Um, another way in which we can see this is by it's uh, fleshing out a little bit of the conflict that exists between resilience and sustainability. Of course, resilience and sustainability can be aligned and are aligned in practice in many ways. For example, both principles or goals in general promote a concern for ecological issues in urban planning and in design. But then, building local resilience by no means uh, 
will will mean that automatically our cities will become more sustainable. In fact, resilience building measures can increase greenhouse gas emissions or, or carbon or carbon footprint or or dependence on external resources. And actually, as you see in the quote there, some resilience measures are clearly in conflict with sustainability. For instance, if you read sustainability, uh, how to interpret it in planning or in design, as the need to avoid inefficiencies in resource management and in um, providing infrastructure, uh, then of course that's in clash with the idea of redundancy. And conversely, if we are interested in, pro, um, in building uh, resilience through redundancy, then we are in clashing with the idea of sustainability. That's why Nachenborg, for instance, in the article and another article that we shared with you, asks us to take into account, especially the tran transformative aspect of resilience, that is in order to look for the longer term. And ask questions not only about how we can be resilient now, but also in the future and eventually be aligned with sustainability. So what we have more or less spoken here about is three kinds of justice issues that can arise and they are summarized in the table. On the one hand, we have distributive issues that relate to how some decision or measure is going to impact on individuals and communities. What, are the, what is the balance of costs and benefits or risks and, risks and opportunities? Um, and of course, we may interpret this idea in various ways. Uh, we may want to protect the most vulnerable or even to benefit them. We may also consider the need to not inflict disproportionate or very serious damage on anyone at all, not only the most vulnerable, but, but anyone in the city. But, but also we may be interested in limiting trade-offs between sectors, population sectors or areas of the city. Um, there, is a, there is also procedural justice, which concerns not so much the outcomes of interventions, how they will impact uh, different balances of risks and opportunities for different people, you know, but uh, also who participates in them, who, is, who has a say in deciding, in prioritizing, in making decisions related to shaping uh, the, the measures. Uh, of course, those issues are very interrelated because if you are not included, you don't have a say in a decision-making process, it's likely that your needs and your vulnerabilities will not be taken into account. And the third issue, of course, it's also related to this, as Roberto mentioned before, which is the, the one about intergenerational justice. How will our measures impact on future generations? Oftentimes, future generations are impacted just because they're parents, their predecessors were impacted. That is how poverty passes you know, down the line, essentially. But we now are, of course, when asking intergenerational questions, often re, uh, referring to the problem of sustainability. That is how we are affecting, how are we affecting the natural asset base of a population or of a country or of the whole humanity? Uh, are we foreclosing future options for development? Are we, that is, uh, disabling uh, the ability of future generations to decide uh, and change their development options. Um, and that, that is, for instance, uh, what the Brundtland, the 
the definition of the Brundtland Commission as test to consider in the sustainable uh, regarding sustainable development. So uh, while we're waiting for any questions to come in, uh, just to recap, um, to summarize uh, what we uh, just discussed. So we started by just introducing the concept of resilience. Um, although there are many definitions of resilience coming from many different fields of research and uh, work in the fields, um, we uh, wanted to highlight the engineering-based definition. So how we look at um, the solutions that we design and we implement in order to um, the physical systems in our cities that we uh, implement in order to either prevent a, a, a major shock on our uh, urban systems or to mitigate the impact, um, so to, to lessen the impact, or to adapt our urban systems in order to be able to cope uh, better with uh, future shocks on the system. Um, but as we've already mentioned, this is quite a limited view and already people in the conversation are um, being rightfully uh, a bit critical of this uh, limited engineering based view. So when we bring in the topic of justice, uh, this uh, is a, a critical um, factor to consider how our engineered uh, solutions may impact positively or negative, negatively society. And then another important question is um, the economic impacts. Can, uh, are these solutions that we can afford? Are these solutions that uh, will um, equally benefit people um, that can be distributed uh, in an equal way? This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, Don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time.